Pentecost. What does it mean? Pentecost. What does it mean? Last week, we looked at the Old Testament for what Pentecost signified for Jews and why was it significant that the pouring of the Spirit on Pentecost happened on the Jewish festival of Pentecost? Well, today, I would like to continue that same question, what does Pentecost mean? But the answer we will look at is Peter's answer to the question, what does this mean? Peter's first sermon. The first sermon that Peter preached. The first sermon preached in the book of Acts. The first sermon preached by the disciples after the resurrection of Jesus. The first sermon preached by the disciples after the ascension of Jesus. The first sermon preached by the disciples after the pouring down of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now, as we open the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse, verse 14 through 41, and by the way, those of you who are um, using a Bible provided in the chair in front of you, if you don't have your own Bible, we encourage you to get the, the Bible in front of you. You may find this uh, on page number 945, 945. As you're turning there, and we are preparing to hear Peter's first sermon, we would expect that uh, the focus of the sermon that Peter preached on would be the Holy Spirit, right? After all, it is the sermon on the day when the Holy Spirit was poured out. But while it's true that Peter will preach and talk about the Spirit, the spotlight will fall on something else. And that is Christ. It will be Christ and the salvation that we find in His name. And therefore, the title of my message this morning is Exalting Christ, the Floodlight Ministry of the Holy Spirit. Exalting Christ, the Floodlight, floodlight Ministry of the Holy Spirit, found in Acts chapter 2, verse 14 through 41. Here is the word of the Lord for us. But Peter, standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and of all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing him from the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh always will dwell, also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to hate, or let your Holy One see corruption. You made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that, we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for cert certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were caught to heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who hope and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you join me in a word of prayer and ask the Lord Jesus to give us his spirit in fresh ways to understand him and to speak to us. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that makes Christ visible to us. We pray that today the Spirit will put the light on Christ once again 
and may his salvation be made clear and evident to us in our hearing. I pray this so that you may call people to yourself even in our midst this morning. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Friends, before we look at Peter's sermon and exactly what he preached on, I want to look at the emphasis he gives before he starts preaching. Um, someone said earlier to me, prior to the service, I hear we're going to have a, a great preacher today. I said, sure, Peter. We're going to look at Peter's sermon. He's a preacher this morning. But before we look at his sermon, I want to look at the way he emphasizes. He starts off. He starts in verse 14 by asking those in the crowd to listen attentively to the explanation he's going to give about Pentecost. In other words, Peter is emphasizing that we need to listen carefully to God's Word. And specifically in Peter's context, to listen carefully to the meaning of Pentecost, men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. We must understand what Pentecost, what Pentecost is about. We cannot sit in ignorance or in misconceptions about what Pentecost is about. Now, Peter first corrects an impression that some in the crowd had that the disciples were drunk. While many were amazed in verse 12 earlier and asked, what does this mean? Verse 13 tells us that others in the crowd said, they are filled with new wine. Friends, yes, even on Pentecost, on this great event, there are some people who made the wrong conclusion, even though they were eyewitnesses of what was happening. You know what this means for us? That you can be an eyewitness of a miracle and still walk away with the wrong conclusion. A miracle by itself will not point out the significance of what it has, of what it, uh, it means. The Word of God has to come along and explain the significance of it. And that's what Peter is doing here. He is explaining what Pentecost is truly about. The Word of the Lord must be given to explain plainly to us what God has done. Our human eyes are not able to perceive the deep significance of what God has done among us. Even when God fulfills a prophecy, even when God fulfills His own Word, our bare eyes cannot see it unless it is explained to us. We need God's Word to, uh, to interpret the significance of the pouring out of the Spirit. And that's what uh, Peter is doing here. What does Pentecost mean? What does it signify? I'd like to point out to three points from Peter's sermon. This is not my sermon. This is Peter's sermon. And I just want to do some cliff notes for you and emphasize some things as, according to what Peter himself is emphasizing in this sermon. What does Pentecost signify? Here's the first thing. If those of you who like to take notes, here's the first point you want to write down. The giving of the Spirit 
is a reminder of our need for salvation. The giving of the Spirit is a reminder of our need for salvation. Verse 17, Peter starts quoting the prophet Joel at the moment when God gives a promise to pour out His Spirit in the last days. Now here's a huge principle to realize. When the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament, whether it's word for word or where, or where they refer to it, the Old Testament as an allusion or as an echo, we must realize the New Testament writers don't use the Old Testament as a handmaid or as a servant to do, the, to do whatever they want with those quotations, you know, to take them completely out of context and, and just use them for whatever they want to. Instead, what they do, they're going to the Old Testament as a guide to help them understand the significance of the events in the New Testament. So, the Old Testament is not a servant, but a guide. So, when the, what this means is that when a New Testament author goes back to the Old Testament and quotes the Old Testament... It's actually that entire background of what's happening in the Old Testament that they're alluding to, and that has significance for understanding what's happening in the New Testament. And one way to point this out clearly for us is the way to understand what Peter is doing in Acts 2 when he quotes Joel chapter 2 is by actually going back to Joel chapter 2. We must realize that this sermon is not word for word and everything that Peter has preached on that day. Verse 40 tells us that he spoke many other words. This is more like an outline of what Peter preached. So it's very possible that Peter went back to Joel chapter 2 and gave more background of what's going on. And I want us to see that background. So turn to Joel chapter 2, the passage that Bob read earlier for us in the service. For those of you who are finding your ways in the Bible, it's page number 793 in the Pew Bibles. But Joel chapter 2 starts with an, an announcement. Blow the trumpet. Why? What needs to be announced? Joel, Joel chapter 2 verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Why? For the day of the Lord is coming. Is near. And from verse 2 in chapter in Joel to verse 10, the prophet describes a huge devastation that will come upon the land. This devastation is so huge that in verse 3, Joel gives us a, a, a beautiful picture to help us understand the gravity of the devastation. And the picture is verse 3. It's a comparison. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them, a desolate wilderness. Picture that devastation. Like a garden of Eden prior to the devastation, and like a desolate wilderness after. That's a picture of the devastation. And then in verse 11, the Lord utters His voice. He says, the Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. 
Who can endure it? It's a big question in Joel. Who can endure that great day of the Lord? Now, this, this is a picture that the day of the Lord is described as in, in the book of Joel. The Lord will be in control of that devastation. And in the initial context, it referred to a dev devastating calamity that hit the land of Israel. We don't exactly know when and how. But the, the point is, that devastation was just a shadow of another future bigger and more devastating day of the Lord. The question about the day of the Lord is, who can endure it? Look at verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. Who can endure that day? No one. No one. The only hope is to return to the Lord, to repent and call on him. Then from verse 12 to verse 27, Joel gives a picture of what God will do to restore the land. It's as if God answers that prayer of repentance right away and gives a picture of all the restoration that God will do. A beautiful picture. And then verse 27 says, You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there's no, no one else. Why will God allow the calamity? Why will God do an amazing restoration? Why? So that He can tell the Israelites that God is in their midst, that there is no one like Him. Friends, this sounds just like the prophecy of, of Ezekiel that we looked at last, last week when the prophet Ezekiel points out that God's ultimate motivation is to vindicate the reputation of His name by rescuing His people who had been enslaved. God Himself enslaved them, and God Himself rescued them. He was in control of both. Why did God do that? To vindicate His holy name. The same thing happens here in the book of Joel. Friends, God is going to do this so that people would know that there is no other God besides Him. Friend, if you're here this morning and perhaps, perhaps you're not a Christian, this may be challenging for you to hear at a time when our society has discarded the idea of one true God, one true, absolutely perfect God who is the ultimate truth, who is the ultimate reality, and who deserves our exclusive worship. That idea sounds very strange to our society. Rather, the idea that other gods or other religions might be true also is highly acceptable today. Not only that, but it is considered a sign of humility and open-mindedness to consider the, the truth of other religions. But here God is trying to convince people that there is no other God besides Him. If this is what God, our Creator, is seeking to do, why would we find as a sign of humility and open-mindedness the pursuit of truth in other gods? By the way, Joel 
when he speaks, in, in the book of Joel, God is trying to convince not the pagan nations of this truth, but his own people. Because they started doubting it. And it's possible that it was not by their confession, by their statement of faith that they doubted it, but by their idolatrous way of living. That's why God called them to return to him, not just with their garments, not just outwardly on Sunday morning, but with their hearts, inwardly. This is a context in which God promises to pour out his spirit in the book of Joel, verses 28 and 29, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now, if that was all that Joel prophesied, we could conclude, great, Acts 2 fulfills the prophecy of Joel. It's a done deal. But look at what else Joel says. The pouring of the Spirit is not the only promise that God makes to Joel in chapter 2. Keep reading, verse 30, of cataclysmic events that will also occur. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In other words, in Joel, the promise of the Spirit does not cancel out the coming of the day of the Lord. The fact that God will pour out His Spirit as a sign that He is restoring His people does not mean that the day of the Lord is canceled or suspended. Quite the opposite. The pouring of the Spirit is a sign of the nearing of the final and great day of the Lord. The pouring of the Spirit is a precursor before the coming of the day of the Lord. And remember the question asked earlier, who can endure it? Well, verse 32 in the book of Joel answers the question. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Who can endure that great day? Those who call on the name of the Lord. But just so we don't get a boasting in our ability to call on the name of the Lord... There is a very important qualification that Joel also makes very clear for us. That those who call on the name of the Lord are also those whom the Lord calls. These truths are not mutually exclusive. Now turn to Acts. This is Joel. This is Joel chapter 2. Now turn to Acts. Peter, in verse 17, starts quoting the prophecy about the Spirit in, and and. He could have concluded with verse 18. But he doesn't. He gives on the rest of Joel's prophecy, quoting, quoting it until talking about the coming day of the Lord. And in verse 21, 
he gets to the climax of Joel's prophecy about the way to escape the day of the Lord. And Peter says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what Joel spoke about. And then Peter puts a pause on the prophecy. And then he will return to it again in verse 39. Verse 39, Peter says, For this promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So that Peter's entire sermon from the beginning to the end is an explanation about Joel's warning and promise. Warning about the coming day of the Lord, but promise about the way of escaping that day. Friends, Pentecost brings the warnings and the promises of God into real time. The pouring of the Spirit reminds us, first of all, of how God, how seriously God talks about His judgment. The great day of the Lord is coming, and Pentecost is a significant mile marker that we're getting closer and closer to it. Friends, Peter spoke about this 2,000 years ago. From Peter's perspective, we're two millennia closer to that day. When Peter quotes from Joel 2, his aim was not simply to point out the prophecy about the pouring of the Spirit, but also to talk about the need for salvation. That's why Peter's first point is that the pouring of the Spirit is a reminder of our need of salvation. Rescue from divine judgment is needed because of the human rebellion against God. People need to be saved because we are part of a generation and a humanity that failed before God. We need to be saved because we are part of a corrupt and wicked and crooked generation. You may say, Samuel, why are you talking so much about God's judgment on a day when we celebrate the pouring of the Spirit? Why so much talk about God's judgment? Well, because of verse 41. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. That's just a summary of all the other words Peter used in that sermon on the first day of Pentecost. So the pouring of the Spirit reminds us of our need to be saved because we are part of a crooked generation. We are alienated from God, our Creator. And friends, this alienation is seen in our attitudes towards God. This alienation is seen in our attitudes towards other people. This alienation is seen in our attitudes towards ourselves. This alienation is the reason why our humanity is corrupt. And that's why we need to be saved. We need to be rescued. Friend, I realize there's nothing positive. There's nothing positive in seeing ourselves as alienated, corrupt, Crooked? Nothing positive in that. Except one thing. You cannot call out to be rescued unless you realize 
you're stuck. You don't, need, you don't see a need to be saved unless you realized you're in bondage. That's the only positive for seeing ourselves and for seeing this generation crooked. Where Pentecost brings the promise of escape clearer than ever before. Pentecost not only reminds us of the need to be saved, Pentecost also mo- makes clear and clearer the, the, the way to escape. Who is the Lord on whom to call for salvation? It's point two in Peter's sermon is that Jesus is the Lord on whom to call for salvation. Jesus is the Lord on whom to call for salvation. When Peter gets to the point in Joel's prophecy of calling on the name of the Lord to be saved, it's as if he puts on the pause button and now we'll start talking about who this Lord is. And he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, with wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. And Peter goes on to talk about Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And we could talk so much about just these four points, about how it is God who planned it out. It is God who planned out for Jesus to come and, and be incarnate. It is God who planned out for Jesus to be killed. Yes, it is God who planned out for Jesus to be killed by the Jews, crucified. Why? Because of his justice. The wages of sin is death. That is the justice of God. And God cannot simply forgive sinners. He cannot. Unless payment for their sin is made. So God determined to give His Son to die on the cross so that the punishment for our sins was executed not on us but on Christ. I love the words of an old hymn that I just discovered recently, uh, a, a hymn entitled Stricken, Smitted, and Afflicted. And one of, the, one of the stanzas in that hymn says, Tell me ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear, his cause disowning, Foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. It was the plan of God that Jesus would die because he died in our place. But God raised him from the dead. And Peter says in verse 24, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. What an amazing truth about Jesus. It was not possible for death to get a hold of him or to hold him. He got a hold of him, but he could not hold him. Why? 
Well, we would say because Jesus without, was without sin. That's true. Um, and yet he died in our place as a sin offering and being cursed by God for our iniquity. Peter quotes another Old Testament text, this time from Psalm 16, and tells us why Jesus could not be held by death. In Psalm 16, verse 8 through 11, David is full of joy because the Lord is always before him, and thus his hand will not be shaken. David rejoiced because God will not abandon his soul to the Hades, and because God will, would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. Now, who was David talking about? Was it himself? No. Because his body was still laying in the tomb. And Peter points to this. And he says, brothers, go back to the tomb. David's bones are still there. David could have not spoken about himself. He spoke about Jesus. Jesus had to resurrect because God said it. God determined it. God predicted it long before it happened. What a beautiful picture about God and His power, and the power of His Word. Can you imagine God telling death, you can't have my son for very long, only for three days. Then I will reclaim him back. That's the power of God and of His Word. Friends, when Christians die, when we die, our bodies still experience corruption, even though our souls go into the presence of God right away. But when Jesus died, even though he was allowed to experience death in our place, he was not allowed to experience corruption because God said it through the mouth of David. And so it happened. Three days later, before his body could decompose, he resurrected. The resurrection is of huge importance for the Christian faith because, as John Stott says, by it, God reverses a human verdict on Jesus. He snatched him from the place of a curse and exalted him to the place of highest honor. So after Peter proclaims the resurrection of Christ, Peter says in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. We have seen it. With our eyes. Up until now, Peter pointed to the Old Testament as witnesses, as a witness to, the, to Christ. Now Peter says, we too are witnesses to Christ. But there is another witness that Peter will point to, that points to Christ. It is the witness that Christ not only resurrected, but the witness that he also ascended to the right hand of the Father. And the witness that proves that Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father is the pouring of the Spirit. The pouring of the Spirit is a third witness. Peter points to that Jesus is indeed the Lord in whom we can be saved. How do we know that Jesus went to heaven and he actually was exalted at the right hand of the Father? How can anyone know that since no one went to heaven? to see that and came down to see Christ exalted at the right hand of the Father? Well, the answer is the giving of the Spirit is proof of Christ's exaltation. So these events of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, the right hand of God, these point beyond shadow of a doubt 
that the Lord on whom we must call for salvation is no one else but Jesus. That's why the second point Peter gives in his sermon is that Jesus is the Lord on whom to call for salvation. Friend, have you ever called on him for salvation? Have you ever? When most of us think of calling on God, we typically think of calling on him to get us out of a current mess, out of a current disaster, out of a current pain or turmoil or trouble. And we typically say, God, if you get me out of this trouble, I'll be good. Some of you have done that, not just once, but many times. And you're not, still not good. This is not what Peter's talking about. Peter exhorts the crowd to call on the name of the Lord to be saved from the coming universal disaster that will come upon the entire creation. Friends, whatever we're going through in this life is nothing in comparison with the great distress that will come upon the world. And even that is nothing in comparison with the eternity-long punishment of the wicked who choose to remain apart from Christ. So, friends, we need to be saved so that we may not die as enemies of God, being under the footstool of Christ, as Psalm 111, 110 quotes. But what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Peter's last point, the third point, is that calling upon Jesus means repentance and baptism in his name. Calling upon Jesus means repentance and baptism in his name. When the audience hears the truth about Jesus, about the one they crucified and yet God exalted through his resurrection and ascension, when they realize that Pentecost was a proof, what they have seen and heard on the day of Pentecost, that mighty rushing wind, those tongues of fire, what they have seen, those things, that was proof that the one crucified was actually exalted at the right hand of the Father. When they realized this, the one they crucified was now at the right hand of the Father, their hearts are, are pierced. They realize they are in trouble. Oh, friends, this is the first condition needed to respond to the gospel, to realize that you are in trouble with God. For the God you have rejected, the God you have ignored, the God you have belittled, is the Lord of lords, enthroned on the highest seat of authority in this universe. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I pray that you would realize, first of all, that you are in trouble. But realize that there is a way to be saved out of this trouble. So I pray that you will ask with the audience on the day of Pentecost, what must I do to be saved? Peter's first answer is very simple. Ford Wright, verse 38, repent and be baptized. Every one of you. In the name of, the, of Christ, of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. John Stott says the gospel is good news, not only of what Jesus did, but also of what he offers as a result. He promises to those who respond to him both forgiveness of sins to wipe out the past and the gift of the Spirit to make us a new people together 
these constitute the freedom for which many are searching. Freedom from guilt, defilement, judgment, self-centeredness. Freedom to be the persons God made us and meant us to be. Friends, calling on the name of the Lord is not just a simple acknowledgement that God exists. It's not just even the, the, the paying of a lip service that He is Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord involves that deep desire of our hearts to be rescued from sin and from the punishment sin brings. It is a deep desire of our hearts to be made free from sin. We cannot free ourselves from the bondage of sin. A decision will not make it. When we call on Him, He, Christ, provides the way to be rescued from sin because in His death, Christ broke the power of sin as well as He covered the penalty for our sin. So, friend, I wonder if you've ever called on the name of the Lord in a saving way. I wonder, have you ever called on the name of the Lord in a saving way? I wonder if you've ever been convicted of your sin, convicted of your need to be rescued, to experience a cleansing and forgiveness of your sins through the blood of Christ, and to experience a new life that Christ brings through His Spirit. Friend, if you have not done so, I pray that wherever you are, right now, in your seat, in your chair, don't wait until we're dismissed. I pray that wherever you are, you may call on the name of the Lord to be saved. You may have come this morning guilty, condemned. You could leave this place freed of the weight of guilt, freed from your sin. What a joy that would be. I pray that you would do, this, do so right now. Praying in your heart, calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. If that's your desire, I pray you do it. If that's your desire, or if you have other questions, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Pray that you would experience the salvation that Peter talked about on the day of Pentecost. Now, for those of us who are believers, what does this mean? When you explain the gospel to other people, when you talk about the gospel, do you call people to repent? Do you call people to turn away from their sins? Or do you just tell them about the goodies that God gives? Apart from making it clear that a turn must take place. To be rescued from this crooked generation means there will be a turn away from our attachments to sin, from our attachments to this crooked generation, a turn to Christ to embrace His salvation and Lordship. Friends, if Christianity is weak in America, I wonder if part of the reason is because we, the messengers of this gospel, we, the church, have left out the call to repentance. I often ask people to tell me the gospel, and one of the uh, one of the things most, uh, most often that typically is easy for me to leave out, one of the key truths that is left out is the call and need to repent. Or at other times, we have turned repentance into a magical prayer that we say once. The repentance is not a one-time prayer. Let me say that very clearly, friends. That repentance is not a one-time prayer. 
that we say once. It's rather a change that takes place in our hearts. We actually turn away from ourselves, from our sins, from our idols, and turn to the Lord. Repentance is first of all an inward reality before it ever gets spoken on our lips. And then public profession of faith is not just, you know, raising your hand or walking down the aisle, making a decision for Jesus. That's not the public profession of faith. The public profession of faith is baptism. You know why? Because that alone is able to declare visibly what has happened internally, namely our death to ourselves, our death with Christ, and our resurrection with Jesus. That's why baptism is a, is a pointer both to, to our repentance and faith in Jesus. That's why Peter's third point in his sermon is that calling upon the name of the Lord means repentance and baptism in his name. So what is Pentecost about? What does this mean? We see from Peter's first point, first uh, sermon, three key points. The pouring out of the Spirit is a reminder of our need for salvation. The pouring out of the Spirit is a reminder that Jesus is a Lord on whom to call for salvation. The pouring out of the Spirit is a reminder that calling upon Jesus means repentance and baptism in His name. Friends, these truths become vivid to us, to our hearts, only by the work of the Spirit. It is a Spirit that makes these truths real. And they make these truths vivid to us. J.I. Packer, in his book, Keeping in Step with the Spirit, gives the following illustration about the role of the Spirit. He says, this Holy Spirit is what we may call, or the Holy Spirit has a, the ministry of what we may call a floodlight ministry in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Packer remembers walking one, ta- one time to a, 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 a church where he was preaching. And he was preaching on the passage um, where Jesus says about the Spirit, He shall exalt me. And Packer turns a corner and sees this church. It was dark outside and, he, and sees this church. And this church was all lit by, light, by floodlights. And he didn't see the floodlights. All he saw was the church. And because the, the floodlights were on, he saw the details of how beautiful that church was ornated. And Jeff Packer thought, well, this is, this is what the Spirit is doing in relation to Christ. If you don't have the floodlights, you might still see that the building is somewhere out in the dark. You might still see some contours in the dark. You might still see that something is there. But when the lights are on, you really see what's there. And you see the details, you see the colors, you see the shapes, you see the, you see the ornate of the church. In the same way, we might have an idea, a very general idea that some things are wrong with us. We might see a contour of what's happening, but it's dark. Or we might not see it at all because that's how pitch dark it is. But when the Spirit comes in our hearts, one of the things He does He turns on the light so that we might see the details incredibly clear. The details of our own sinfulness. Not just the the general thing, not just the contours, 
but it starts making sense. Here, what I did yesterday, that was such a sinful thing to do. I can't believe I did that. I didn't realize I'm this, I'm this bad of a sinner. Or it might be just a long string of things that the, the Spirit convicts you of. It becomes real. That's what the Spirit does. Turns on the light to see the need for salvation in stark reality. And then he, the Spirit also points to the Savior, the one who, in whom we can call to be saved, Jesus. And then the Spirit is the one who turns on the light to tell us what exactly we must do and what repentance looks like, what baptism signifies. Oh, friends, all of this is possible because of the work of the Spirit. That's why Peter's message on the day of Pentecost, Peter's message about the Holy Spirit really points to these three truths, the need for salvation. Jesus is the Lord on whom to call upon for salvation. And to call on Jesus means repentance and faith. Friends, I pray, I pray that the Holy Spirit among us this morning in our own hearts would make these truths seem like they're right up front, right here, not in a distant, but right here, so that we would do something with it and say like the crowd, what must I do to be saved? Would you join in with me in a word of prayer? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the Holy Spirit that you sent to us on the day of Pentecost. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the many ways in which you have made the truth about your life, death, resurrection, and exaltation true to us. Lord, I pray that you would continue to draw people to yourself this morning by your Spirit through the proclamation of this gospel. And may your church be empowered, be strengthened to make this gospel clear, make this gospel bold, so that the hope you have given to us may become real in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our city, and in our world. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.